This episode is not suitable for children to listen to or overhear. It may contain coarse language, adult themes and graphic descriptions. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program may contain the names of people who have died. A Perfect Storm, the true story of the Chamberlains. I think Azaria would have lasted a matter of minutes There were certain people within the Northern Territory Police who were determined to get her. People were saying to me, oh, you're going there to see that woman who killed a child. Bad things happen to good people. Episode 10, The Matinee Jacket. Hello, I'm John Buck. Over the past year, I've set myself the goal of looking at as many of the elements of the Chamberlain case as is possible. Stephen and I have searched through the Seven Studios archive to find out what was broadcast no traces had been found uh, of the missing child and what wasn't. I didn't get the I didn't get the bullets and what have you and a fortnight later Azaria disappeared. I've also been able to access materials stored elsewhere such as the Northern Territory Police Fire and Emergency Services Information Archive. And I've recorded my own interviews with those involved or with valuable insights. Yes, I suppose if you were a keen policeman, you'd be... I also thought it was best to only use material of Lindy and Michael Chamberlain from the time. My wife is an innocent woman and uh, it'll be virtually over my dead body that she'll stay in jail. So you could hear the same interviews that the public heard in the early 1980s. But there was one person that our searchers found very little of. One person who the case revolved around. But I doubted an interview could happen, or would happen, for any number of reasons. Well, you have up here from Adelaide the forensic botanists, and they're collecting uh, various samples of plant matter from around the area. Detective Sergeant Graham Charwood interviewed Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. His team collected evidence from Uluru Ayers Rock, searched the Chamberlain's house and their car. He supervised blood tests, watched media appearances of the couple and recorded conversations with everyone involved. Graham Charwood had been tasked with finding all of the pieces from a complex missing child case. In less than 10 years, he'd gone from a junior constable to the lead detective on Australia's most famous police investigation. I'd always had aspirations to become a police officer. I tried to join the New South Wales Police as a gazette and as an adult, but they had then, and I think still do, very strict physical requirements, i.e. height, weight. Uh, I I was a skinny little lad and couldn't make their weight requirements, so... I couldn't get in. Uh, I went off and did some other things in in New South Wales. And then uh, in about 1973, saw an ad uh, for the NT police wanting police officers. So I put an application in, uh, got an interview and was successful. Graham Charwood quickly rose through the ranks and was posted to Ayers Rock as a detective sergeant in the criminal investigation branch in 1978. Two years later, Azaria Chamberlain disappeared from her parents' tent. 
Inspector Michael Gilroy was the first to arrive at Ayers Rock, Uluru on August 18, 1980, and he conducted the first interview with Lindy Chamberlain. Could you please tell me your full name and address? Alice Lynn Chamberlain, 3 Abel Smith Parade, Sunset Mount Isa. Do you actually see anything in the dingo's mouth? No, I didn't see anything in the dingo's mouth because that was below the level of the light. Uh, it sort of had its head down and coming out of the tent, I thought it was just shaking its head to get past the thing, but I thought flashed through my mind that it's no good going to caravans and telling people, can you please come and help? So I just stood there and screamed out, has anybody got a torch? Because the dingoes got a baby. They came immediately. There was almost as if they'd been sitting with torches in their laps. There was four blokes out of their tents. I know that's a really tough thing to listen to. It's a recording that was played in court and then it was stored away for 39 years. But let's not forget, that's what this whole show is about. After the initial search failed to find the nine-and-a-half-week-old baby, Graham Charlwood was put in charge. Through September 1980, he tracked down missing witnesses, sent evidence to laboratories, and then flew to Mount Isa to speak with Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. He interviewed Azaria's mother first, without a lawyer present. Um, I'd have to be honest and say that uh, she was cooperative. Yeah. Uh, there was no um, reluctance on her part to participate. Yeah. You said later that you thought she may be hiding something, but you didn't suspect her. Um, I suppose I'd formed a view at that stage that there was more to the story than was being told. Right but what, I didn't know. And you didn't uh, offer her a caution, so... I, did, I didn't have reasonable cause to believe that uh, she'd committed an offence. Uh, there was no need to caution her. But you cautioned Michael. I wonder why you did that. My recollection is that parts of the story that he'd previously told didn't quite add up. Yeah. So we'd reached a view that maybe he had some involvement that he hadn't disclosed. Right. But not, I didn't form the viewers particularly what involvement, but, but some involvement. More, more in the, more in the, the, in the after, call it the aftermath, after the event. It was based on some of the forensic material or evidence that the, the results we'd, we'd had back at that stage. Right. And my memory is it related to his camera bag. On the night of Azaria's disappearance, Michael Chamberlain had driven in the family car to a motel to join his wife and sons. He was accompanied by Roberta Downs, a local nurse who sat in the front passenger's seat. Her police interviews described seeing a camera bag, which appeared to be very full. She asked Mr Chamberlain if he would like her to hold the bag while he was driving, but he said, quote, that it was okay and that he always kept it there because he kept his cameras in it and when he was driving along, he could take pictures of things as he saw them." Unquote. Despite the fact that there was evidence that Mr Chamberlain did keep his camera in that manner and that Ms Downs noticed no blood on the camera bag, 
the investigating detectives were not convinced. Graham Charwood and John Scott questioned Lindy and Michael Chamberlain over two days and then prepared to return to Alice Springs. You know, you finish up that day and you walk out. What's your feeling then what, about this couple? Uh, that we had a lot more work to do to, uh, to reach, uh, reach uh, any sort of uh, conclusion as to what had really occurred. We didn't have enough uh, evidence to suggest charging anyone. There was one piece of evidence still missing. Let's listen to Lindy Chamberlain explain what Azaria was wearing on the night of August 17th, 1980. She had a little throwaway nappy, a singlet and a little um, stretch toweling suit, a little pair of knitted booties and a little knitted mat and eye jacket. In Britain, Australia, New Zealand and most Commonwealth countries, a short coat for a baby was often called a matinee jacket. It's what we now call a button-up sweater. Lindy had told everybody that there was a matinee jacket, but when the clothing was found, um, it wasn't there. Stuart Tipple is the Chamberlain's longest-serving lawyer. And, of course, it became important because when they said, we've tested the clothing and we couldn't find hairs, and we couldn't find saliva, etc. we were able to say, well, um, that's because the baby was wearing a matinee jacket and that was covering the, the, the other clothing. So, of course, the Crown never accepted there was a matinee jacket and really implied that Lindy was, was lying about that. We always knew the matinee jacket was missing, uh, obviously, from the evidence of, uh, of Mrs Chamberlain, that the child had had a matinee jacket on it when she put it down uh, and it, it wasn't found with the other clothing, which seemed odd. Regardless of how the clothing got there, um, it was odd that uh, the matinee jacket wasn't there. You, you hadn't discounted it actually existing? No, no, we never thought that at all. Or I certainly didn't. Uh, we subsequently conducted extensive ground searches uh, right round the rock to try and find it. It wasn't, uh, we didn't uh, say it never existed. Detective Sergeant Charwood gathered further evidence at Ayers Rock, combined it with results from the Adelaide Labs, a report from Sergeant Sandry in Darwin, and the Chamberlain's formal interviews from Mount Isa. And he handed it all to Coroner Barrett, who held an inquiry into Azaria Chamberlain's death. Barrett's coronial findings were televised in February 1981. I find that after her death, the body of Azaria was taken from the possession of, a ding, of the dingo and disposed of by an, unknown, by an unknown method by a person or person's name unknown. And he made a subsequent finding that, uh, that there was involvement by person or persons unknown. Yeah. Which I think was a, quite a, an open finding. What did your group take from, I guess, from that? Um, I don't have a vivid recollection of it. I know that we had a meeting. Yeah. Uh, and uh, where to now was discussed. And uh, subsequently, Operation Ochre uh, was, was set up. Investigations were, uh, were resumed. 
when a report came back from Professor James Cameron in London that outlined a scenario where Lindy Chamberlain had decapitated her child in the family car, the Northern Territory Police Commissioner and Attorney General cleared the way for Graham Charwood and a team of detectives to fan out across Australia. Quite simply, a, a plan of action was, uh, was developed yeah. uh, and part of that was to go to Kurumbong and um, principally to... Uh, to look at the Chamberlain's vehicle, the vehicle that they'd uh, taken out to Ayers Rock. Charwood recorded the search of the Chamberlain's house on a microcassette recorder. Yes, some fresh information has come to hand. So don't say the Chamberlains were, you know, exuberant about it, but they were cooperative. Okay. Um, well, suddenly the biggest media event again. Uh, even during the search, helicopters had um, been um, hovering over them, the media had been tipped off. We've got besieged by uh, Channel 7 helicopter just landed. Channel 7 helicopter just landed. Every conversation Charwood had with me, in fact, every conversation they had with anybody was recorded and recordings were made of Charles, by Charwood of his conversation with me. Uh, he'd also taken um, uh, Lindy in a, in a car and had had a conversation with her, uh, but claimed that the tape recording of that conversation uh, had failed. And so it basically became in that instance, a case of uh, his word against her word, which differed quite a bit, um, where he claimed he'd put the allegations that she'd murdered a child directly to her. You had a chat with Mrs Chamberlain? Yes. Can I ask you what your recollection of that is? Where no, I don't, I don't have a vivid recollection of the conversation. I know I spoke to her, but beyond that, no, I don't recall. Let's hope that that car is what we're after, mate. Sorry? Let's hope that it's the car that's what we're after. We could well have a, a blood result today. Yeah, well, uh, you'll certainly be stopping there until we get a blood result. Well, we'll only ever get one good crack at them, so we'll want to be well armed before we ever go back. Oh, yeah. You know, we'll have all our forensic and everything before we go back. The Chamberlain's car was quickly moved to the New South Wales Police Vehicle Compound for forensic testing. I asked Graham Charwood why they chose that site. Um, well, Kurumbong is in New South Wales, and of course the closest forensic science unit to Kurumbong is, is in Sydney. So we wanted to get the car examined as quickly as we could. You know, putting a car on the back of a truck or however you do it, transporting it to somewhere else um, potentially could contaminate the evidence. I suspect that if everyone involved in the investigation, from the police commissioner to Graham Charwood, could have had their time over again, they might choose a different place to test the Tirana for traces of baby blood. In fact, I asked the former Attorney General of the Northern Territory, Daryl Manzi, himself an ex-policeman, what he made of the forensic decision in 1982. It was a very rare set of circumstances where I think a lot of people trying to do the right thing made mistakes. I mean, what was his name? Uh, Cameron. He was supposedly one of the world's uh, foremost blood experts, you know. I mean, he, he failed in that he became a little bit 
too uh, pedantic about what I guess what he was looking at. And then on the other hand, we had the, 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 the laboratories in New South Wales were not supervising their processes properly. They actually failed terribly by not uh, uh, managing the, um, their scientists in the processes that they were using. I, I, I think with Joy Cool, she was, uh, it was almost like she was at the bottom of the tree and, uh, and, the, and the head of the laboratories down there said, this is your job, go away and do it. Um, without anyone sort of saying, now this is, you know, this is how you do, making sure she was supervised. I mean, that's, that's sort of the way that things are supposed to, to operate. So everywhere you looked, what I guess people at first glance would have thought was, yes, that's the proper way to do things, um, it, uh, it didn't happen. You said you didn't have apprehension about the people in South Australia because you dealt with them. Was there any sense with you and Neil Plum about how important this was to your case? That uh, Well, it, it was another, I suppose, um, a brick in the wall, um, building, building you know, an overall picture. Uh, Neil Plum had had involvement with the New South Wales Police previously from my memory, so uh, he was comfortable with, uh, with, with the work that they, uh, they had done and what we were asking him to do. How's it all going? Good. That blood, that's, oh, that's got my, me interested now, mate. The blood on the floor. Blood on the floor of the vehicle. Whereabouts exactly in the vehicle? Right now. Um, um, my memory is that New South Wales Police uh, had uh, a high level of faith in, in Joy Cool and, and, and the lab she was working for, so you rely on that. But that's, that's the case with uh, sending material off to any uh, laboratory for forensic examination and testing that you, you have to have faith in that lab to, uh, to do, uh, do what you're asking them to do or to do what they see as necessary uh, and to apply you know, all the professionalism that you expect when that's, that happens. Detective Superintendent Neil Plum presented the Operation Oka findings to the Northern Territory Police Commissioner and in turn the Northern Territory Supreme Court quashed the findings of the first inquest and eventually Coroner Jerry Galvin, using the evidence and testimony presented to him, decided there was sufficient evidence to charge the Chamberlains. Lindy and Michael were committed to trial where Graham Charwood once again appeared in the witness box. When you go to trial, you are just another witness, if you like, mm. um, and there's no uh, no direct involvement apart from you giving evidence before a judge in front of a jury. Uh, no other involvement. You're there to assist the court, but very much uh, at arm's length. Did you sense the mood had changed about the Chamberlains? What happens as? No, I, I really never got involved. Um, mm. I, I I took the view that you'd had taken a path. Um, and we were at trial. Uh, I gave my evidence, um, as did numerous other people. One of the other witnesses to give evidence was Sally Shaw. Her testimony was clear. Azaria Chamberlain was alive at the time when the Crown said she had been killed by her mother. Shaw heard the baby cry and alerted Lindy Chamberlain to go and check the tent. If she'd heard the baby cry, how... How could all these other things happen? Where did that sit 
with you. Yeah. I, I can't recall, honestly. <clears throat> we need to take a quick break. We'll return to my interview with Graham Charwood later. Sally Shaw had effectively been ignored by the jury, but the indigenous trackers who searched for Azaria Chamberlain were not even called to give evidence. The Crown did not want them, and the defence were unsure how they would appear in the witness box. The deep experience of the Anangu people went unheard Getting by the jury. I asked veteran journalist Malcolm Brown what he thought about this. There were some Aboriginal trackers who, who, who said that uh, Dingo took the baby, but their evidence was tended to be discounted in this arrogant white male superiority uh, view of the world. They should have had a lot more credence all the way through because they were born and part of the landscape. Which way did you go then from here? Then two amazing stories were broadcast by Channel 7 in late 1985. They shed light on the Lindy Chamberlain case like nothing before. That's a tingle track, a proper tingle. Little one, you can see him. Is that where the tent was, Nipper? Yeah, right here. While both sides agreed that Nipper Winmarty had not led the main search team on the night of Azaria's death, his wife Barbara and others, like Nue Munyantiri, had tracked Dingo Paw Prince away from the tent into the surrounding sandhills. Nipper returned to the barbecue site in late 1985 with a Seven News team to explain just what his wife and others had seen. Is that where you started uh, yeah. to see the tracks yeah. first? Yeah. Have a look around track and go around, come around like that one, where they pull it in now. And I'll come around again, right on the corner, and go inside. What's the difference between this track here and the one you were tracking different that day? From, different from Dingo. That's a Dingo. Yeah. And you, you were tracking, what were you tracking then, Nipa? I've been tracking Kurpine. Right. And he was he half dog and half Dingo? Yeah, proper Dingo. Different track. Where was the bush where the baby was put down? Yeah, and he been kept out that way. When they said Linda buried the baby, they couldn't find it? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's how I've been, I've been playing Dingo. Yeah. Lindy's in a guilty. And Papa came jail for nothing. And now the second story that Channel 7 broadcast in 1985 that is important to hear. To this day, no one knows for sure what It's happened. a little strange to me, this one, because I actually edited this story on November 26, 1985, for 7's State Affair news program. I never imagined I'd be playing it again 34 years later. It's an interview with Yvonne Kane, one of 12 jurors from the Chamberlain trial. I rang my former colleague, Paul Jenkins, to jog his memory on a story he reported that broke many rules. Right from the start, the dingo's got my baby, that, that cry that went out into the night. Um, yeah. that, that captured imagination, not just in Australia, but all over the world. You were, you were in one camp or the other. You believed right. Lindy Chamberlain or you thought she'd killed her child. Um, yeah. I, I think I was in the... Um, believing Lindy Chamberlain because, you know, things like that happen in the bush. And 
uh, it just didn't seem on what I knew of the case from the reporting of it that it was beyond the realms of possibility that a dingo had taken an infant from a tent. Ayers Rock, August the 17th, 1980, and the beginning of one of the most bizarre cases... And on this particular day, we took a phone call from a juror in the Lindy Chamberlain murder trial. Now, that's a pretty unusual occurrence. Um, I can't recall before or since um, having a juror come to um, a TV station or a newspaper and, and, you know, subsequently do an interview that was published. And you found her guilty, guilty of murdering her child. Why do you think she should be released now? Because there's always been that seed of doubt, even though we sort of went on the facts. There was, well, in my mind, that tiny seed of doubt that has just grown because I see all around me people trying to pull her out of jail. And then... I just feel in my heart I'm frightened and I'm guilty. I'm just worried that it was wrong because so much has come out since that we didn't know about. Did you have that seed of doubt at the time, though? I mean, you say you've, you've always had that seed of doubt, but did you have it at the time of the trial? Yes, I think I had in my own mind that seed of doubt, but at that time, the facts told me that I had to say guilty. Jurors are told throughout a trial um, that they must reach their verdict on the facts pre presented to them at trial. No emotion, no speculation, no outside influences. You know, they're not to read newspapers or watch television and that sort of thing. Just consider the evidence presented at trial. Shouldn't you, though, if you had that seed of doubt, have held out for a not guilty verdict? I know, but we all talked over our doubts. We all put them forward as we spoke and we all talked it over. And then we had little experiments between ourselves in the tent and with the um, things that we had to look at. And that made up my mind that night, well, beyond reasonable doubt, it must be. We can't do anything else but say guilty. It's an amazing insight into the way it proceeds in the jury room at the end of a trial. The discussions they had, the reenactments they went through, they eventually decided as a group on a guilty verdict on the evidence. It was a unanimous decision. Yes. It took us a while. We all put the ifs and buts and fours and what fours together. But not one of us said what we thought until the very last day. And then we all wrote it down on a little bit of paper and put it into the middle. That was the first that vote? That was the first vote. And that came out four not sure, four guilty and four not guilty. So it was very evenly divided at mm. that point. Mm. Where did it go from there? Well, then we decided, uh, the foreman decided that um, we would, the four unsures would have put forward what they were unsure about and that we'd go through notes. And at that stage, we had um, all the evidence in front of us. We were, had the whole courtroom to walk around and look at. So we did a few little experiments. We held the baby doll that was the same size as Azaria and sort of dragged it along the floor to see how the dog would have dragged it, and it didn't work like that. So... So what was your conclusion? As we did those few experiments and, and looked at things closely, we all swayed towards the guilty. How they worked their way through that process is something that 
you know, before or since. I don't recall another case where a juror has come forward and said, this is how we reached our decision. And that's an extraordinary thing, I think. All of the jurors were happy with that guilty verdict? No, we were all very, very upset. Very. And in fact, some of the men were crying. I mean, all the women were in tears, but it did. It broke up a good few of the men too. We wanted to say she was not guilty. And, um, but as the evidence came through, we used to go into the jury room and say, well, how could it be this way, you know? She must have done it. She was clearly conflicted. She was um, distressed at what she'd done. And it wasn't until a couple of years after the verdict, after the trial, when new information had started to emerge, when it became clear that not all of the facts had been presented to the jury, that she began to think, well, maybe we've done the wrong thing. Maybe we didn't have all the facts and we should have trusted our first instinct. Have you changed your mind? Do you think she's not guilty now? I'm worried in my mind that she's not, that she's not guilty. I'm very worried. It's hard to believe that Mrs Kane and three other jurors who initially thought Lindy Chamberlain was not guilty changed their minds based on circumstantial evidence. Seven years before she agreed to convict Lindy Chamberlain, Yvonne Kane had lived in Alice Springs and her own son had been bitten by a dingo in their backyard. Let's hear from former Northern Territory Attorney General, Daryl Manzi. This massive media interest, it must have affected every juror that, that sat in that. Um, it must have had an effect also on, even though judges are supposed to be uh, people that um, have no uh, emotions and can only uh, take interest in, in the evidence presented, or, um, I'm sure that that, that, that it was everywhere. In the end, it was, it was uh, television. You know, there was a whole range of things which um, made it very, very difficult uh, to, to see how this was going to sort of end. There have been calls in recent years for a change in the way that complex scientific evidence is presented in court. Many believe the evidence in a trial like the Chamberlain's would be better evaluated by a panel of experts in much the same way the EU does in its legal system. Well, looking back on it, on it I mean, to me, the scientific evidence should have gone before a board of scientists and then some decisions reached as to what um, should be presented and then it gets presented. And there was a lot in the case where you did need to understand, um, you know, the science side of it. If at the time there was the ability for that uh, evidence to be assessed independently and, and given to the fact that it, the scientific blood uh, was um, very iffy. It wasn't an absolute. It, you know, it was, a, it was really different days and, and of course the, the experts will um, argue, as they do in just about every scientific endeavour, that, um, that the, 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 there's a different conclusion can be reached. And the jury uh, are never schooled in any of this in any way because we just don't teach people these things at school. So in this particular case, um, if this happened today, 
um, there would be probably a, uh, a different ending. But we still have a jury system because it's seen to be the, the going back to the days of the community making an assessment. Canberra Times journalist Philip Castle had secured an interview with Marshall Perrin, the Northern Territory Attorney General. It was a very strained interview. He wasn't at all open with me and I wasn't mucking around. I just said, look, uh, I understand that you offered a deal to Lindy that if she pleaded guilty, she could get out on uh, a non-custodial sentence and postnatal depression would be used as the uh, reason to release her. And his response, which gave it away completely, was, who told you that? And I said, well, you know that I've been to visit Lindy this morning. She told me. I said, do you deny it? And he, he said, no. He said that was offered to her. I said, well, that's pretty poor, isn't it? I said, you were trying to set her up to entice her to get out of jail simply by telling a different story to the dingo story. And he wasn't very comfortable with that interview, but, you know, I got it. He, he confirmed that that had happened. But I also got a very strong impression from him that they felt very threatened by the federal government and this Senate sort of uh, attempt to overrule their own decisions. And I did put it to him that she wanted to be out for Christmas. And he said, oh, well, that's irrelevant. Mr Perrin is the person who has the total responsibility and power to either release her or not. In the following days, Marshall Perrin was debating Colin Mason in Seven Studios. I think the day we come to uh, public uh, consensus or public voting on uh, one, whether a prisoner should be released or not, and secondly, whether or not an inquiry should be held, irrespective of the justice of an inquiry or the grounds for an inquiry, to overturn 150 years of judicial practice, I think will be a very serious day in Australia, and I certainly won't add to it during my term as Attorney General. Mr Perrin, if we just leave it there and perhaps yes. get a final comment from Senator Mason, where does that leave you? I will be pressing for a, a, a commission of inquiry from the Commonwealth of the Powers of the Royal Commission, because I believe that where so much evidence is regarded by so many eminent legal authorities in Australia and so much of the, of the public to be in doubt, that it would leave a permanent question mark over the Australian system of justice right into the future if there isn't an inquiry. There must be an inquiry into the Chamberlain case to determine the facts, the truth or otherwise. The Chamberlain Innocence Committee had created a blue book of documents, so-called for the colour of its cover. It included Les Smith's test results that proved the Crown's trial evidence was flawed. It included new evidence confirmed by Hans Brunner. There were the photos and documents from Barry Botch's visit to the German laboratory and statements from people like Derek Roth and Professor Robin Carroll. So you've got Barry uh, I've spoken for hours with Stuart Tipple about the Chamberlain case. We've exchanged dozens of emails and text messages. You might think that he's a very patient man and you might also think that he's very loyal to the Chamberlains. And you're right, he's both. But he's also something else. Above all of that, he's loyal to the rule of law and justice. So where was he at in late 1985? So all of this new evidence went to the Northern Territory Attorney General and I was 
quite confident there's no way in the world that if this was properly looked at, that we shouldn't get a Royal Commission. The, Nor the Northern Territory newspapers indicated for quite some time that a, a Royal Commission was going to be called. Um, and then suddenly it changed. And you saw the flavour that, okay, someone's in the know, something's happening here, they know something. And sure enough, I got the letter. I got the letter from the Northern Territory, dear Mr Tipple, I have carefully considered the new evidence and I do not consider that there is anything uh, in there that is cogent enough and uh, the application was uh, refused. So that's it. Once that's refused, that's the end of the road. Um, and so there was nothing else I could do and there was nothing else the Chamberlains could do. As word spread of the Northern Territory Government's decision, a young English backpacker named David Brett passed through customs at Sydney Airport. The young man from Kent, who had a curiosity with witchcraft and sorcery, had one destination in mind, Ayers Rock, Uluru. If you think you know the Chamberlain's story, you don't. Until next week. I'd like to say thanks to Nikki, Simon and Stephen who helped create this episode. And a shout out to Chris Reason, Paul White, Linda Scott, David Jones and Mike Smithson. And thanks to you for listening.